This is Sit Rap on BFBS. This week on Sitrep, NATO leaders meet in Lisbon this weekend to discuss the alliance's future. Will they make some big changes? The Chandlers may be free, but many more are not. We'll hear how the EU's naval force is continuing its counter-piracy operations. And there are concerns the withdrawal of British troops from Germany will be difficult. We talk to the Army Families Federation. BFBS. Headlines. David Cameron says defence was the hardest area to deal with when deciding on government spending cuts. He's facing his first grilling as Prime Minister from the heads of all 33 Commons committees. A Royal Marine from 4-5 Commando and his sister have died after their sports car crashed on a country road in Scotland. The deaths come just over a week after another Marine from the same base also died in a car crash. The latest accident happened in Aberdeenshire. No other vehicles believed to have been involved and the victims' families have been told. A man has been jailed for at least 21 years for murdering a toddler he attacked after her crying interrupted him playing on his Xbox. Gary Alcock from Oldham punched, slapped and pinched 15-month-old Violet Mullen in the weeks before her death in January. And FIFA is defending its decision to suspend but not expel two of its members over claims they asked for money in exchange for World Cup votes. They were found guilty of breaching FIFA's code of ethics but not of corruption. Critics say football's governing bodies missed another opportunity to clean up its act. And that's the latest. I'm Adam Gilchrist. NATO leaders have a lot to talk about at this weekend's summit in Lisbon. What should the alliance do about Afghanistan? How to strengthen relations with Russia? Above all, what is NATO for? Set up to uh, counter the threat of the Soviet Union, now Russia's president is an invited guest at the summit. And all but one of the former Warsaw Pact nations are NATO member states. The world is changing, but it's not clear if NATO's changing enough to keep pace. Our reporter James Hurst will be following events over the weekend. James, what's on the agenda for this summit? You could almost break it down to two items, which is what what NATO's doing now and where its future lies. But if, if you look at the questions about where its future lies... They're talking about restructuring. They're looking to set down a new command structure, rationalise things like the, the different agencies, everything from the maintenance supply agency to the Eurofighter and Tornado Management Agency. Fourteen of them, they want to take those down to three, and that will mean reducing some personnel at the management side of things. They're also looking at a familiar topic uh, to, to Britain, cyber security, relations with Russia, as you mentioned. Those are, are things for the future. Of course, everybody's going to be looking at it, talking about what it's doing right now, and that is Afghanistan. Well, Afghanistan, of course, has been NATO's toughest uh, mission so far. How will the summit address the country's future? All the signs are that they want to lay down at least the starts of a timeline for ending this mission as NATO. Uh, We've heard uh, dates from President Obama. We've heard uh, end dates from David Cameron. NATO itself has not started to set down formally a timeline, but it's clear that that's what we're heading towards. David Cameron was talking about it in his Mansion House speech earlier this week and really setting out the the, the same thinking that we've been, been hearing over the last few months. We are there to help Afghans take control of their security and ensure that al-Qaeda can never again pose a threat to us from Afghan soil. A hard-headed, time-limited approach 
based squarely on the national interest. And 2014, this date for Afghans to take control of their own security is what everybody is looking towards. But General David Richards, uh, head of the UK's armed forces, was interviewed about this on Sunday. Uh, And he was also making clear that while the combat mission may end, then there will still be more to do in the support roles. Over the next four to five years, we will remain in the combat role, but progressively less so as the Afghan army and police grow in capability. Everyone is clear uh, that we will have to remain a lot longer than that in order to make sure that we consolidate on all that hard work. And um, the plans are now in place to do that. And I think the Lisbon-NATO summit will make that rather clearer than perhaps it's been to date. Now, of course, they don't turn up and spend a day and a half there and, uh, and reach agreement suddenly. A lot of work has gone on this behind the scenes. It's likely that deals have already been done and that what will happen is these will then be signed off by the heads of state. Well, the uh, Russian president's in Lisbon. What scope is there to broaden cooperation between NATO and Moscow? Uh, I think NATO and Russia see quite a lot. I mean, Afghanistan, we've already heard them talking about cooperating on things like um, transit routes across Russian airspace or even Russian soil, working together on counter-narcotics, uh, the possibility of Russian helicopters for Afghan forces. This is a, a serious prospect that uh, Russia could, without providing fighting forces, provide some assistance to NATO in this. But they're looking broader than that to the world as a whole in the future. NATO's communicators are talking about fighting terrorism, about proliferation, nuclear proliferation, proliferation, and also the Secretary General talking of hope of maybe getting some agreement on missile defence. You'll remember perhaps that the uh, the US missile defence shield that was proposed for uh, parts of Eastern Europe to protect against possibility of, say, a missile attack from Iran, Iran proved very controversial. I think NATO is looking at maybe working as an organisation with Russia. They may actually find some common ground. So what the member states need to do then is to draw up a new strategic concept, if you like, effectively outlining NATO's mission. Do you think the alliance has ever properly established its post-Cold War role? Well, it, that, that pre-Cold War role, that Cold War role was to defend on alliance soil. And it is clear that that is not what NATO has been doing since the end of the Cold War. Afghanistan, the biggest NATO operation that we've seen in recent years. Counter-piracy, it's not on NATO soil. And, and they are clear that they need to reflect that in their new command structures. And they're talking about a new mission statement reflecting what reality has become. OK, James, thank you. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me in the studio. Christopher, this, it's been said, is the most important NATO summit since the end of the Cold War. Do you agree? Um, yeah, cert- well, certainly the, in the past 10 years. Um, what happened in 1999, there was a sort of mission statement you were talking about, and it's called the, uh, the strategic concept. And so what NATO's been doing for the past 12 months, NATO uh, members have been looking at and saying, what do you think we're going to be doing in the next sort of 10, 15 years. And this is the great document which they're going to be signing up. This is the gold pen affair, as the Americans call it. And what they have to do is this, very simple. They have to say, is NATO a European-based organization with the Americans in and Canada in, or is it a global organization? The French, the British, and the Americans say it's a global organization, even though Afghanistan, etc., hasn't turned out too good. The Germans, mainly led by the Germans, the rest of the Europeans say, no, 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 it is very much a European organisation. The Russians, who have been attending NATO meetings now uh, at a lower level, and Medvedev is there this time, uh, are saying, no, it is a European uh, organisation. 
And, of course, the Russians, even though they stretch across 11 time zones to the uh, Pacific, still think of themselves as a European country and for the past 100 years wanted everybody else to think of them that way. Let's talk about restructuring and then about strategy. In terms of restructuring, that equals cuts. It does. Um, I don't suppose anybody in the services would be surprised to know that NATO actually has 11 different headquarters. And if you've got 11 different headquarters, you've got, 30, in fact, 13,000 personnel running them at the moment. They want to bring that down to 9,000. Some people say, no, 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 it ought to be down to sort of about four, or 5,000. That's not going to happen. Um, and once you get them down to four, or 5,000, they'll just start building up again. So that is definite cuts. What happens when you get definite cuts, people start saying, we might be losing our command structure. We may be losing an important headquarters uh, or a sub-command. One of our admirals has got nothing to do, for example. You know, one of our admirals is missing from the, from, from the list. Uh, and how do we do that? That's very political. It's not military. In terms of strategy, with, with a view to Afghanistan, what will come out of the weekend, do you think? I think they will, the most important thing that will come out of the weekend will be a timetable for withdrawal and also who pays. It costs or will cost just to pay the armed forces of Afghanistan and the police £3.9 billion a year and we're going to be paying that for the next 15 years minimum. That's quite a chunk, and it's going to be a bit of a headline uh, at the end of the Lisbon meeting. Uh, talking about cuts in relation to the SDSR, the Daily Telegraph's got quite an interesting story today, hasn't it? Yeah, and um, basically what it's saying, that inside the MOD, there was a committee we put together to look at what happened after the SDSR and whether it was done properly. I was talking to one of the guys on the committee uh, uh, yesterday. He said, we are so hacked off. We are very hacked off with the army. We are very hacked off with uh, uh, the CDS, the way the army sort of cornered it. The Navy didn't handle it properly. He said, I think the one thing that's going to come out of this, once we're out of a combat role in Afghanistan, the Navy and the Air Force are going to reassert themselves because the army won't be able to make out such a big case anymore. And maybe, he said, we'll even hang on to those two aircraft carriers instead of uh, flogging one off to the Afghan Navy. What's um, Liam Fox had to say about it? Liam Fox says, oh, well, I, uh, we're all in unison here. The chiefs of staff were behind me. Actually, I'd rather be standing alongside him, but, um, <laughs> if, well, if I were Liam Fox anyway. No, he said, it, it, and the person that actually wrote this was really junior, um, and I don't know anything about it. Exactly what he said about the leaked letter, his leaked letter to the Prime Minister just before SDSR were published. I think there's going to be a lot of eyeballing going on next time he goes into a cabinet meeting. In terms of morale, is this damaging or in some way galvanising? Uh, no, it's damaging. Uh, and it, it reflects... I, I don't think that the document itself is, is, is damaging. I think what it does is reflects... People are exasperated. They say military weren't properly consulted. There wasn't enough time. Nobody took any notice. The other thing is there was something like 60,000 submissions from the general public to uh, the uh, committee that looked at this. Not one of those letters was considered in any single way. They just binned a lot. That is bad for democracy, say the military. What do they know about it? OK, Christopher, thank you very much indeed. Uh, stay with me. BFBS Sipwreck. Still to come, why the government decided to pay out to British men held at Guantanamo Bay. And the new chief of the defence staff has admitted it will be difficult to bring half of the British army based in Germany home within the next five years. We'll hear what impact his comments have had on families there. This is BFBS Sipwreck.
Paul and Rachel Chandler spent more than a year in captivity, in solitary confinement at times, beaten and malnourished. Their capture and subsequent release highlighted the danger posed by Somali pirates. Days after the Chandlers were seized, there was an abortive Royal Navy rescue and its reported special forces were preparing another rescue attempt but were hampered by administrative delays. While the Chandlers are now free, hundreds more are being held. John is a captain in the Merchant Navy. I'm absolutely delighted they're free, but I'll say two things about it. First of all, they shouldn't have been there because professional mariners like myself who have no choice where we sail, approach that area with great apprehension. And secondly, I'd just like to remind your audience, there are 433 seamen being held hostage. A vast area of the sea off Somalia remains hugely dangerous for shipping. So, how successful is the EU's anti-piracy force? It costs half a billion pounds a year to patrol the waters between Somalia and India, yet it remains the world's most dangerous area for shipping. Wing Commander Paddy O'Kennedy is from the European Union Naval Force. Wing Commander, how successful has the force been so far? Um, I think we've, uh, we've been hugely successful. We have achieved uh, most of the stuff that we've set out to do. Um, with ourselves working with, with our partners in NATO and the Combined Maritime Force, um, we've so far disrupted a, around 130 uh, pirate groups. And if you look at that statistically, um, assuming that 20% uh, of those groups went on to, to successfully pirate a vessel, uh, that's somewhere in the region of 30 ships that, that would have been pirated uh, had we not been there. However, uh, I do agree that, that, that we don't seem to be deterring the, these pirates at, at the time. But, but to answer your question, uh, hugely successful so far, I believe. Because from the outside, it seems like you have all the technological tools at your disposal. What seems to be a massive budget, yet small uh, Somali pirate ships seem able to evade you. What is the problem? Um, well, the, the, not so much the problem, but the issue is the, is the scale of, uh, of the area we're talking about. Um, it's two and a half million square miles, which is uh, akin to the size of, of Western Europe. Uh, we have 12 warships uh, and five aircraft, so uh, it's a big ask. The, the, uh, the length of the coastline, the Somali coastline, again equates to uh, the, the coastline of the United States. Uh, that's an awful lot of, of, of space for us to, to cover in one go. So, so do you need more resources? Would, would air support be of use? Um, we have air support. I myself have just come back from, from Bahrain where I was in charge of coordinating uh, CMF, uh, Combined Maritime Force, NATO and the EU's maritime control aircraft. Uh, we do have several of those uh, available to us. Uh, they are working every day with the helicopters from the ships and the warships themselves. Um, so we, we really are doing our best with the assets we've got. Ultimately, though, people are still being taken captive. Ransoms are still getting paid. How worried are you, for example, by uh, the fact that the Chandler's uh, captors are reported to have said that they will reinvest the ransom paid in what they call their business, i.e. the business of kidnapping more people? Um, unfortunately, uh, I'm unable to comment on, on ransoms. It's something we just don't do. Um, but it's a, it's a hell of a business model these people have got uh, for, for a, a, an initial low outlay. Um, they could make uh, huge amounts of money. I, like you, have seen the open source reports of, of the amounts of ransoms that they are allegedly getting. Um, so it's something that, that, is, that is, it's a problem that we can only deal with ashore. Uh, it's something that certainly the EU naval force uh, are not going to solve, are not going to stop at sea. Um, the problem uh, lies ashore, and, and that's where it has to be solved. OK, Wing Commander Paddy O'Kennedy, thank you very much for your time. You're perfectly welcome, thank you. Uh, Christopher, there's talk about a British command post running operations against Somali pirates being one of the areas at threat from NATO uh, cost-cutting. Would that be a mistake? Um, no, it won't be a mistake because it's politics. I mean, what, what it is, if you're, 
the European Union, say, it's got uh, uh, vessels there. Where, does it, where do they command? Because the European Union hasn't got a, a military command system. So that's done within a NATO headquarters. So you've got some guys, for example, uh, at Northwood. In Portugal, they're saying, well, we really ought to have it in, down here at Lisbon. We ought to be in command of it. Uh, and especially as, a, as there's a Lisbon conference going on the summit this weekend, it'd be bad news, wouldn't it, not to have it here. And the Americans say, well, we really couldn't care less. You know, sort that one out yourselves in, in, in Europe. And the Europeans are saying, well, we don't really mind. Uh, so that, that's quite possible that the command and control will shift to Lisbon. We heard the wing commander saying in that interview there that uh, it's a massive area that they're trying to police. Can more be done to prevent uh, piracy? Yeah, one of the difficulties that you, you've got to do is it's, it's intelligence-based. And whether you have intelligence-based ashore, that doesn't matter so much because these guys are going off in their own boats and doing it willy-nilly. What you probably better off is, is a combined intelligence-gathering operation within the Indian Ocean. That could mean airborne, far more airborne intelligence. It could be satellite, near-Earth observations, etc. And it's what you do with that intelligence. And then you come to the crucial point, and that's the rules of engagement. Just supposing you come alongside the pirates, what can you do about it? Um, there are certain uh, countries that say, well, just shoot them out of the water. You're not supposed to do that. And that is the big diff difficulty. So you've got uh, on one side, intelligence gathering. The other side, rules of engagement. Uh, I mean, my personal preference is that you keep Ark Royal, you send Ark Royal out there, you keep a couple of aircraft on board, and you've got airborne uh, intelligence gathering. But that's, I'm probably biased. This is SITREP on BFBS. Earlier this week, the government agreed to make payments to 16 men who were held at the Guantanamo Bay detention camp in Cuba. The Justice Secretary, Kenneth Clark, made the announcement in the Commons. The alternative to any payments made would have been protracted and extremely expensive litigation in an uncertain legal environment in which the government could not be certain that it would be able to defend departments and the security and intelligence agencies without compromising national security. Well, he also said it would allow a public inquiry into their detention to begin. The amounts the men will receive are confidential, but are thought to total millions of pounds. The former detainees, all British residents or citizens, had alleged that British intelligence agencies and three government departments knew about their torture, but failed to stop it. Shami Chakrabarti is the director of human rights group Liberty. Some of these people were tortured and relied upon our government, who was also their government, to, to protect them. And instead, there are now legal findings in some of these cases that we, we did the opposite of protecting them. At times, we sent questions to the interrogators who were torturing them and so on. These aren't just our allegations anymore. The government wouldn't be settling these claims if they didn't have merit and there weren't already findings of fact in courts of law. I think the government's done the right thing, which is to say enough is enough. So did ministers act to avoid a long, embarrassing court case which could have put our intelligence services under an unfavourable spotlight? Richard uh, Norton-Taylor, The Guardian's Defence and Security Editor, joins us now. Richard, thank you very much for being with us. Um, do you think this was about protecting national security or about making an awkward situation go away? Well, the second, really. Um, the uh, MI5 and MI6 in particular would have been on the spotlight for a protracted, very protracted court case, as Kenneth Clark, the Justice Secretary, suggested. But, uh, and uh, what is interesting is that the lawyers and the people themselves accepted the conversation, which is quite a lot of money, maybe up to uh, 10 million in total among 16 people. Um, now, uh, if you're a lawyer of one of these people, you, you, 
you're, you're going to say yes to, to, the, to the money. It's, it's not compensation, as the government said, although in, in, morally, I guess, it would be described as that. As Clark said, it was um, a legally binding um, uh, mediation agreement, mediation settlement, with no concession of liability on the part of the security intelligence services. But what it has done is, is has stopped a, a, a long uh, argument in the court about disclosure of documents, tens of thousands probably. Um, and it would have gone on and on and on, as Clark said, maybe costing about 50 million quid and taking up a lot of resources of MI5 and MI6. Now they would say that, wouldn't they? But uh, the, the more importantly, that uh, it, it paves the way for this inquiry. You said public inquiry. I'm not sure how much is going to be in public under the former appeal court judge, Sir Peter Gibson, into the whole gamut of allegations against uh, uh, of, of British security intelligence um, uh, agency collusion in the torture of uh, of detainees by um, mainly by this by the, by the Americans actually by the CIA and, and most of them went to Guantanamo Bay. That in turn, just to finish this, will lead to a green paper which the government has promised uh, next year, which will prevent any information about this uh, information gathered by the security intelligence services from coming out being disclosed in in court at all. And that was rarely set up because of this case. This compensation case, and another case involving a former Guantanamo detainee called Binya Mohammed, a UK resident, where the judges said that some of the allegations or British evidence of some kind of involvement in the American mistreatment of this man um, should be released in court. Some some CIA CIA information was released in court. MI6, in particular, were very very annoyed and angry about this, saying it's going to threaten intelligence cooperation in the future. Hence. This will not happen ever again. So from from what you're saying, Richard, uh, Ken Clark's assertion that this will draw a line under the matter can't be true, can it? Well, that's what, well it, it it will draw a line under the under the under the under the present of the present case, which has now been settled. But there will be this inquiry, as you say, under Sir Peter Gibson. But that most of that will be in uh, in private. But it, but he's got to come up with this uh, with, with some kind of credible conclusion that there's quite a lot of evidence going around. You didn't have to believe every uh, uh, bit of allegation um, swarming around the place, but you know, there's, a, there's enough to suggest. Indeed, MI5 and MI6 have, have admitted, the heads of those agencies have admitted, we were slow to recognize how the American administration, after 9-11 attacks, would uh, go about treating and, 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 and capturing and, and, tre- and then treating terror suspects, including British residents or, or, or citizens. And, of course, we now know about uh, what President Bush has recently said in his autobiography about his legal advice, that uh, you can waterboard people, you, you can do X, Y, and Z. We call them, certainly all the European countries would call all that torture. The Americans don't. Um, the argument will be probably closed by the sometime in the middle of next year. We may get much more about British involvement. People say, hands up, we admitted X, Y, and Z. But from now on, as I say, there'll be a new law saying that none of the uh, intelligence information can come out to be disclosed in court at all. Okay, Richard. Richard Norton-Taylor from The Guardian. Thank you very much uh, for being with us on the programme. Christopher, ultimately, though, we're no nearer the truth. People who thought these men might have been guilty of something probably still do. People who think that this uh, somehow, um, uh, you know, confirms some sort of innocence still will. Maybe a court case might have been better to get to the truth. Uh, The court case wouldn't have been better because we wouldn't have got to the truth because a lot of the information would have been held. And this is the basis of the problem. Torture, define it. Uh, Richard was saying that the British were a bit slow to react because they didn't know what the Americans would do. I'm afraid 
great respect, that's nonsense. Uh, British interrogators, British intelligence officers actually regular tra regularly train, go to America to do this sort of thing. They knew exactly what the, uh, the Americans were, were likely to do. The big difficulty is if uh, any court case ca came up where you got some guy, you say, we're going to prosecute you, all his defense has to do is say, that information was gained by torture. Therefore, it's inadmissible, it's thrown out. That is one very good reason not to do it. Uh, we heard Richard there also suggesting or, or questioning exactly how public a public inquiry would be. What are your thoughts? Uh, the, the, that's the problem, you see. Public in, we, we say this, public in, in inquiries tend to go into camera quite a lot because of the information that's going to be uh, given to them. But we said that in, in, about Chilcot with the Iraq inquiry. There's a lot of information that people Actually. said wouldn't have come out in the Chilcot inquiry uh, on Iraq did come out, so I think I, I wouldn't I wouldn't disregard it entirely. The new chief of the defence staff has said it will be difficult to bring half of the British army based in Germany and their families home within the next five years. General Sir David Richards was appearing before the Defence Select Committee yesterday. MPs asked him about his views on the Strategic Defence and Security Review and some raised concerns about the plan to draw down from Germany. Now the declaration is, what is it, half of the component in Germany are going to be brought from there by 2015? Um, I just wonder how realistic that part of that changes because it obviously has implications about basing decisions within the UK. Do you have any observations you'd like to share with us? It will be difficult. Do you think realistically half of it can be brought back by 2015? In a perfect world, yes, in the, but we need the money. We need the places to put them in and I'm not prepared to see their quality of life deteriorate. Well, uh, I'm joined now on the line by Rob Olver from uh, British Forces News in Germany. Rob, what's the reaction been there? Well, I think here, I mean, the main concern is that people do want uh, schools and facilities for their children when they return. They're generally extremely well looked after in Germany. Um, I know, for example, that when headquarters ARC returned to the UK, it took a while to get education sorted out, and that was a relatively small number of people. You're talking about 1,000 personnel. Here you're talking about 20,000. How are you going to house all these people? How are you going to school their children? Uh, Christopher, let's bring you in here. Is five years realistic? We've heard Rob say what the, what the problems and issues are. I think Rob's hit it on the nose there. I mean, it, the idea is you've got 20,000, I think you said, Rob. Uh, but what, what would happen? They wouldn't all come back uh, uh, all, at, all at once. And I think because of the warning that they've got, they've got warnings with local health authorities, uh, local education authorities. I know, for example, that in Scotland, this is already a matter of discussion in case part of the army in Germany actually went into uh, a defunct RAF base in Scotland. So people are looking at it now. It's a question of what do you do with a lot of the hardware, which you're going to get rid of anyway. Can you still come up to the age-old problem? What do you do with all those tanks? Police aware notices stuck on them down the 303 and Levi's. Not going to work. Uh, Rob, you're the man on the ground. Obviously, we're not just talking about service personnel. We're talking about families. We're talking about children uh, in schools over there. What's it doing to morale? Well, at the moment, I think people are facing a period of great uncertainty, and you see that because people don't know yet what the timetable for, for this withdrawal is. And I think that's the big question. Once people know, I mean, we're told we may know something in March next year. Until that point, I think that people will remain a little un uncertain.
Okay, Rob, Rob Olver from British Forces News in Germany. Thank you very much for being with us today. Christopher, just quickly before we go on the programme, let's uh, try and throw things uh, forward. What should we be looking out for in the days coming up? Uh, I think that there, there, there was uh, there's a group which includes Henry Kissinger in America, and they say that what we've got to look at are not the big nuclear weapons, we've got to look at the small nuclear weapons, the so-called tactical nuclear weapons that are held by the Russians and the Americans in Europe. And they're going to form a committee with, and this will probably come out next week, they'll form a, a committee chaired by Sam Nunn, who in, was in the American Senate and ran the Armed Services Committee, with the Russians to actually monitor what tactical nuclear weapons there are. Reason? Terrorism. They believe now the terrorist system, there's enough intelligence around to say that's what they're going to go for. The other thing to watch out for is that General uh, David Petraeus is about to prepare his report, which in about two weeks' time he'll go to Washington and he'll present it to uh, President Obama. And this is the future of operations in Afghanistan. And this concerns everybody in the British forces who is serving in Afghanistan at the moment. And just quickly, let's finish where we started with the NATO uh, summit. What do you expect to be the headlines? that we'll wake up to after the weekend? Uh, it, it, we'll, we'll wake up on, this is the timetable for Afghanistan, but the big story really should be, this is the strategic concept where NATO goes from here. Uh, and also, I guess, we, we mentioned earlier in terms of the SDSR, it, it's a change in, in threat, isn't it? It's about uh, cyber uh, warfare and terrorism. NATO's going through this huge change, uh, and change of idea, what do we do in life? Why are we here, almost? And this is going to be the big debate that will go on after the Lisbon Treaty. And it will be the debate, and it will be say, do we simply want, as we were saying earlier, do we simply want to be a European organisation? When NATO was formed, Pugisme, who was the first uh, Secretary General, said, the reason for NATO is to keep the Russians out, the Germans down, and the Americans in. Well, forget the German part of it, but the Russians out... Uh, in the, it, especially in their cyber warfare, and the Americans on board in Europe, it's still the same, it's still the same uh, uh, requirement. OK, well, that is all we've got time for for uh, this week. My thanks, as ever, to our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Um, if you've got any thoughts uh, on the topics we've covered this week, get in touch. Our email address is uh, sitrep at bfbs.com. And our website, bfbs.com forward slash sitrep, is where you can sign up for our weekly podcast so you never need to miss a programme. Or, indeed, you can listen to it more than once. Um, that's all from us for now, though. Until next time, from me, Matt Teal, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.